0: Hey guys, Jen here. I know I'm supposed to be on hiatus right now, and I am-ish, but I wanted to stop by to share with you all the very first episode of The Serial Killer Chronicles, which is my new eight-part So Dead mini-series. New episodes will drop every Thursday from now through the end of July. So to get the rest of them, you'll have to subscribe to The Serial Killer Chronicles directly because this is the only episode that I'm gonna roll through the So Dead feed. You can find The Serial Killer Chronicles wherever you listen to your podcasts. I hope that you guys enjoy listening to this one as much as I enjoyed working on it. Be sure to let me know what you think. This is a Scream Queen production. Serial City, USA. Sounds like a good time, right? This urban metropolis, located where the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo Rivers converge, has a strange and fascinating history. Named after a bloody battle between Natives and 19th-century land surveyors, Battle Creek was the birthplace of Seventh-day Adventists and a vital part of the Underground Railroad. It was also home to the Kelloggs, a family of eccentric inventors and entrepreneurs who would go on to rule the world of breakfast foods. But before their worldwide fame came the sanitarium, and the questionable deaths, and the fires. And after their downfall came the complicated legacy that would continue to result in tragedy for decades to come. Serial is Battle Creek's lifeblood, but it's also been the root cause of bloodshed many times over. I'm Jen Carpenter, the host of So Dead Podcast. In this eight-part series, I will share with you stories of murder and mayhem from Serial City. Some so outlandish, you'll find yourself choking on your corn pops. Welcome to the Serial Killer Chronicles, a So Dead miniseries. Thank you for joining me for the very first episode of The Serial Killer Chronicles, a project I am so excited about because two of the great loves of my life are serial and true crime. Another is tacos, but that's a different podcast. There's so much I have to tell you guys. I really had a hard time deciding where to start. So let's just start at the beginning. Fair warning, this is one of those stories that's 100% stranger than fiction, so I am going to be using a whole lot of words I'm not comfortable with. There is really just no way around it, and I apologize in advance for the awkwardness. All right, let's snap crackle pop. Part 1: The Mad Doctor. John Harvey Kellogg was born on February 26, 1852 to John and Anne Kellogg, one of 17 children. He was John Sr. and Anne's first son together. John Sr. had five children from his first marriage, and he married Anne soon after his wife died. So John Harvey wasn't the oldest boy in the family, but he was the eldest of John Sr. and Anne's children together. The Kellogg family lived in Tyrone Township, which is a small community in Michigan's Livingston County. John Harvey's parents were devoutly religious, and they were instrumental in bringing the Seventh-day Adventist movement to life. If you listen to So Dead, you know I'm not really big into religion, but I'm going to do my best to explain this in the quickest, most simple way possible, without putting you or myself to sleep. Seventh-day Adventists are a branch of Protestant Christians that grew out of the Millerite movement in the mid-1800s. Millerites were followers of Baptist preacher William Miller, who proclaimed that Jesus would return to earth on October 22, 1844. That didn't happen, obviously, and the date of this supposed rapture became known as the Great Disappointment. That is literally what it's called. Look it up. Uh, Most of Miller's followers abandoned him. They were, after all, greatly disappointed. But a small group, including self-proclaimed prophet Ellen White, had a different interpretation of Miller's prophecy. According to the diehard Millerites, their leader had the date right, but his idea of what was supposed to happen was wrong. October 22nd, 1844 wasn't Judgment Day after all. It was pre-Judgment Day. The end was still coming. John Sr. and Ann Kellogg were banking on the whole rapture thing and therefore didn't bother to do very basic things like educate their children. I mean, what's the point of sending your kids to school if the end of the world is nigh, right? So following the Great Disappointment, they were freaking out a little bit. They sought out the very small faction of Millerites who still believed the second coming was... coming. They needed to believe. (laughs) They needed to believe that this was still happening. And I'm not going to lie, if I was looking at having to homeschool 17 children, I would probably do the same thing. So Plan B became bringing these doomsday fanatics to Michigan. John Sr. and Ann pledged a substantial amount of money to bring Ellen White and her husband James to Battle Creek, where they would run their printing company, which printed religious publications, and their startup ministry. The Whites arrived in Battle Creek in 1854, and the Kelloggs moved to Battle Creek to be closer to them in 1856. Now, that is a drive now from Tyrone Township to Battle Creek for church service. It's over an hour and a half. On the highway, in a car. Imagine in the 1850s with a horse and buggy. No, thank you it definitely made sense for them to relocate. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was officially founded on May 21, 1863 in Battle Creek, where its headquarters would remain for decades. While a large part of their ministry was focused on the second coming of Christ, Seventh-day Adventists, or the SDAs, also put an emphasis on healthy living. Why, though? If the world is going to end soon, why does it matter how you treat your body? Well, they believed that the human body represented God's temple, and therefore it should not be abused. In fact, Mother White, as she came to be known, is considered a leading figure in American vegetarian history. So take that, meat eaters. John Harvey Kellogg did not have an easy childhood. He was small, often referred to as the runt of the litter, and sickly. Even as an adult, he only grew to be five four, so he was always a little dude. As a boy, he had tuberculosis that left him with a non-functioning lung. He was plagued with digestive issues, including colitis. He was so unwell that his parents often worried that he wasn't going to live a long life. Because of this, John Sr. distanced himself from John Harvey. But Anne coddled him. Due to the whole the end is coming thing, John Harvey only had about two years of official schooling as a child. He attended school in Battle Creek from the ages of 9 to 11 before leaving to help out at his father's broom factory. During his downtime between long hours at the factory sorting brooms, John Harvey taught himself to read. Turns out he was whip smart, and he quickly became his mother's favorite of all of her children. And that's a big deal when you're one of 17. I'm one of two- So I had like a 50-50 chance of being the favorite, but the favorite out of 17? Good job, dude. When he was 12, John Harvey began working for Mother White at her printing business. He started out as an errand boy, but he quickly rose to doing proofreading and editing. To do this work, he had to read the work the Whites were publishing, obviously, so he began to absorb it, and he quickly became an expert on Mother White's theories and beliefs regarding health, and he began to follow them strictly. John Harvey wanted to be a teacher, and in 1868, at the age of 16, he began teaching at a school in Hastings, a small town about 25 miles north of Battle Creek. He oversaw the education of 40 students while still finishing his own studies. When he was 20, John enrolled in a teacher's training course at Michigan State Normal School in Ypsilanti, which we now know as Eastern Michigan University. He graduated in 1862. But before he could begin his career as a teacher, his parents and the Whites, who had become like his pseudo-parents, needed something else from him. The Whites had decided to open a wellness institute, and rather than bring in doctors from outside that might have their own pesky ideas, like quit telling people the end of the world is coming, they wanted some of their own to become doctors, so that they would have medical professionals, but also people that followed their faith, so people that believed what they believed doing the work that they wanted them to do, essentially. So John Harvey, along with his older brother Merritt and two of the White sons, traveled to New Jersey for a six-month medical course at Russell Traul's Hygiotherapeutic College, paid for by the Whites. What is a Hygiotherapeutic College, you ask? It's a college that focuses on hydropathy, or what was called the water cure, The water cure was a broad term for a wide range of treatments for pain and illness using water. The school also focused on dietary therapies, hygiene, exercise, and abandoning modern medicine in favor of alternative treatments. John Harvey excelled in the program, and he went on to attend medical school at the University of Michigan and New York University, all on Mother White's dime. He obtained his medical degree in 1875, and on October 1, 1876, at the age of 24, Dr. Kellogg, as we shall now and forever call him, became the director of the White's Western Health Reform Institute. He began making changes right away, starting with the name. He wanted this institute to be a place like no other, which meant it had to have a name like no other. So, Dr. Kellogg quite literally made up a word for it. It's a word you're likely familiar with, especially if you watch those ghost hunting shows where they visit abandoned hospitals, asylums, and sanitariums. Dr. Kellogg invented the word sanitarium, which is derived from the word sanatorium with an O. What's the difference besides changing a couple of letters? The word sanatorium had negative connotations, Sanatoriums were hospitals for invalids and the chronically ill. Basically, people went there to die. Dr. Kellogg's sanitarium, on the other hand, sanitarium with an A, was a place for people to recover and to learn how to stay well. Some might suggest, you know, just picking another word altogether, but Dr. Kellogg did a whole lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense to other people, as we'll come to find out. So he renamed the facility the Battle Creek Sanitarium. The San, as it became known, is a whole nother episode. And I mean that seriously. There will be an entire episode about the goings-on at the sanitarium. Just know that it was a wild, and I mean wild, place. But before I can tell you about that, I do have to tell you some more about Dr. Kellogg. Because there is so much to tell. Like... Dr. Kellogg was a married man with 42 children. 42, I did not misspeak. But he died a virgin. Seventh day Adventists believed in celibacy outside of procreation, which meant that once you were married, you could have sex to make a baby, but that was it, and you certainly weren't supposed to enjoy it. Dr. Kellogg took this belief to the extreme, and he remained celibate his entire life, even after he was married. There were rumors that a nasty bout of mumps as a child left him impotent, but those were never confirmed. If true, that would certainly help to explain why it was so easy for him to abstain. How petty, though? Because you can't, no one can? Sex is the sewer drain of the body, he would tell people. Masturbation was also a big nope. A bigger nope than sex, actually. According to Dr. Kellogg, masturbation is the silent killer of the night. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. Uh, He believed that masturbation caused poor digestion, memory loss, impaired vision, heart disease, epilepsy, insanity, and more. So if you're suffering from any of these health ailments and can't figure out why, there you go. To keep boys from choking their chickens. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I definitely don't want to keep using the word masturbation, though. Um, To keep boys from pleasuring themselves, he suggested that their parents tie their hands, bandage the appendage, as he called it, put a cage around it. Put a cage around it. I guess like a chastity belt. I don't know. I don't know. And then, if none of that worked, his suggestion was circumcision without anesthetic. His hope was that the searing pain would have a permanent effect on the brain, curing the patient of the desire to pleasure themselves. Think that's bad? His treatment plan for girls was even worse. He favored applying pure carbolic acid to the clitoris to burn and permanently damage it. And in more extreme cases, which I'm not really sure what could be more extreme than putting flesh-eating acid on someone's sensitive bits, but all right, uh, in more extreme cases, he recommended surgical removal of the sensitive bits. Okay, let's all just take a pause before we continue, because that was awful, and I'm sure that you're all making the same face that you can hear me making right now. (sighs) Okay. Anyway, the super celibate Dr. Kellogg did get married. On February 22, 1879, just a few days before his 27th birthday, Dr. Kellogg married 25-year-old Ella Ervilla Eaton of New York, who he met when she was a patient at the sanitarium. The couple kept separate bedrooms for their entire 40-year marriage, which was easy to do because their house had over 20 bedrooms. While that sounds over the top, it was necessary because over the years, the Kelloggs fostered 42 children, and they permanently adopted at least 8 of them. Another fun fact about Dr. Kellogg, he always dressed in white, from head to toe. White suit jacket and pants, white shirt, white tie, white socks, white shoes, white hat when the occasion called for it, and a white cockatoo perched on his shoulder. One of the cornerstones of the Battle Creek Sanitarium was teaching personal hygiene techniques. Granted, in the 1800s, hygiene was a legit concern, but like most things, Dr. Kellogg took it to the extreme. He was worried that if he dressed in dark clothing, he would get dirt and germs on him without knowing it, and that was unacceptable. If he was dressed in all white, any stains would show immediately, and he could, and would, go change. Which is cool... But what about that bird shitting all the way down his back? There was no medical or scientific reason for the cockatoo. Dr. Kellogg just loved animals. Now, when we get into talking about the sand a little more and the types of things that went on there, you'll understand just how strange white as a wardrobe choice truly was. Another fact about the doctor for those of you that live in mid Michigan or the Battle Creek area, have you ever seen a black squirrel? Thank Dr. Kellogg. Black squirrels were actually native to Michigan once upon a time, but squirrel hunters decimated their population because they were easier to spot than the standard red squirrels that we all know and hate. Dr. Kellogg grew up in an area where black squirrels were prevalent, and he missed seeing them around. So he had hundreds of them shipped to the sanitarium in 1915, and he let them loose. Through his family's work with scientists and universities, a small number of black squirrels wound up at Michigan State University in East Lansing, where they were released into the wild. So from here on out, whenever you see a black squirrel, think of that maniac Dr. Kellogg. Here's something else. Dr. Kellogg reportedly gave himself five enemas a day. I have nothing else to say about that. It is just a standalone fact that requires no further explanation. And here's a not-so-fun fact about the good doctor. In 1906, he founded the Race Betterment Movement, which is exactly what it sounds like. Some racist poppycock. Dr. Kellogg was not only a follower of the eugenics movement, he was a key player. Eugenics, simply put, was a movement aimed at improving the genetic composition of the human race by scientifically weeding out undesirable traits through selective breeding. This involved identifying and classifying degenerate and unfit individuals based on race, sexuality, mental fitness, financial stability, promiscuity, and disability, then eradicating them. So basically, if you were black, brown, gay, poor, physically disabled, mentally ill, or loose with the cookie, Dr. Kellogg didn't want your jeans dirtying his immaculate gene pool. He didn't consider himself a racist, though. Dr. Kellogg's But I Have Black Friends game was real strong. Of his 42 foster children, many of them were black and brown. He built a community swimming pool for the neighborhood children, and all were welcome, so... People of color could swim in his actual pool, just not his gene pool. Same with the sand. He kept men and women separated, but he did not allow separation based on color. When his friend and neighbor, Sojourner Truth, needed a skin graft, he gave her some of his own skin. Literally. He was supportive and compassionate and generous and even, some might say, loving toward people of color, but he never considered them his equals, and I don't think he had any idea how racist that actually made him. He didn't dislike people of color, he just didn't want them mixing with his superior white race. In 1902, he wrote, the intellectual inferiority of the Negro male to the European male is universally acknowledged. So yeah, Doc, that is super racist. It wasn't just race that drove the eugenics and race betterment movement, however. Through his role on the Michigan Board of Health, Dr. Kellogg promoted a bill that was passed by the legislature in 1913, Public Act 34, an act to authorize the sterilization of mentally defective persons so that they could not reproduce and spread their «unpure genes». Close to 4,000 Michiganders were involuntarily sterilized under this law touted by Dr. Kellogg, including moral degenerates, sexual deviants, epileptics, and the insane. 4,000 people. The Sterilization Act wasn't repealed until 1974. 1974. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was a philanthropic racist, a celibate father, a sexist husband, and a lover of enemas and black squirrels. He was offensive and off-putting, but oddly charismatic. He was a giant personality inside an itty-bitty body. He was the physical embodiment of a mad scientist. He was also an inventor. Here are some things he is credited with inventing, although a few of them are up for debate as others filed patents right around the same time he did. Peanut butter, granola, electric blankets, loofahs, soy milk, and the big one, cereal. And that's what we're really all here for, isn't it? The cereal? Or are you waiting for the murder? That's coming, don't worry. Dr. Kellogg is widely credited with creating the world's first flaked cereal, but exactly how this glorious creation came to be is up for debate. The doctor was a health guru, which we'll talk a whole lot more about in the next episode. He ran a world-renowned wellness resort, and he took his job very seriously. He knew what he wanted his patients to eat, and he was always looking for new and innovative ways to serve it to them. He would take different grains and turn them into a pasty dough, and then try to turn that dough into other things. Edible things that tasted... Edible? Can't imagine they were good things that were easily digestible, that weren't too mushy, but also weren't so hard that people broke their teeth on them, which happened more than once with some of his creations. Creating nutritious, ready-to-eat affordable breakfast food had been an idea of Dr. Kellogg's since his college days when he was always short on money and time. It became even more important to him once he became responsible for the nutrition of the thousands of patients at the San. According to Dr. Kellogg, the idea of flaked cereal came to him in a dream, and he tasked his wife Ella and his little brother Will with helping him make that dream a reality. But no matter what they tried, it didn't work. They couldn't turn their wheat and oat and corn mush into the airy, flaky morsels Dr. Kellogg had envisioned. The precise when, where and how Dr. Kellogg and his crew were finally successful in making cereal flakes is unclear, as the key players all told different versions of the story, which we'll talk about later. But essentially a batch of wheat dough that had been allowed to go stale was run through a set of rollers and came out in the thin flakes the doctor had been dreaming of. The Kelloggs toasted the wheat flakes and served them to their patients, who loved them. This fateful day was August 8, 1894. Allegedly. I say allegedly because even this is subject to debate. The Kelloggs all gave different dates when retelling their origin story. On May 31st, 1895, a patent was filed by Dr. Kellogg for Flaked Cereals and Process of Preparing Same. The patent was granted on April 14th, 1896. This patented flaking process was later applied to corn mush, which resulted, of course, in in cornflakes. And cornflakes, coincidentally, turn back into corn mush if you leave them sitting in milk too long. The invention of cornflakes changed the fate and the legacy of the Kellogg family. It resulted in a bitter feud that tore the family apart and lasted to the grave. It changed the face of a city and the idea of what constituted a healthy American breakfast. It also led to theft, lawsuits, sabotage, and even death. But before we get into all of that, we have to talk about something else. Because before the Serial Empire, there was the San. In the next episode, we'll take a trip to the Battle Creek Sanitarium, where torture was touted as treatment, and a madman was touted as a god. My sources for today's episode were Howard Markle's book, The Kelloggs, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek, An article written by Greg Darty for History.com titled, Dr. John Kellogg Invented Cereal. Some of his other wellness ideas were much weirder. Two articles written by Nick Buckley for the Battle Creek Inquirer. One was, Why Are There So Many Black Squirrels in Battle Creek? And the other was, How John Harvey Kellogg Was Wrong on Race. An article written by Tim Collins for WBCKFM.com titled, When Were Cereal Flakes Really First Made? And then my old standbys, Wikipedia, newspapers.com, and Find a Grave. The Serial Killer Chronicles is an eight-part miniseries with new episodes released every Thursday. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider giving So Dead, my podcast about the weird goings-on in Michigan, a listen. You can find both The Serial Killer Chronicles and So Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find the Serial Killer Chronicles on Facebook and So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also reach me by email at sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jen Carpenter. Thank you again for joining me today, and I'll see you soon. Until then, stay cute, Fruit Loop.